Father and our God, we do gather as people who claim to know the God who expresses love to us in so many ways. We are a God who, we are a people who claim to know a God who, who describes himself as love. And then we come to your word and we claim to be people who believe it and submit to it. And we find contained in it a great exhortation that we love each other. That we demonstrate love. We are told, moreover, that the world will know we're yours by the way that we love one another. We claim all those things, O God. And we pray that by the might and power of the Holy Spirit, you will enable, to, enable us to flesh those out. Those claims that we are people born of love. People directed by love. People in contact with love. Might we love? We indeed, Father, are sounding brass. Tinkling symbols without it. We are a people who know much. But if we are also a people who care little, it makes very little difference that we know so much. People are so concerned to know how much we care before they're concerned about how much we know. And might it be said of us that those people love not simply their friends, they love the lost. They love men and women in all of their bizarre behavior who are outside of Jesus Christ. We love them and long to reach them. Might that be characteristic of us as a church, O oh God, that we would never dream of being cool towards those who do not share our love for Christ because it is by grace that we love Him and we long that by grace they would love Him too. Our Father, we want to be a people who are characterized by loving each other as well. We're all so terribly different. We come from so many different walks of life. Our gifts and makeup and personalities are all barbed. All of us are people who bring our sin into relationships. And yet, oh God, it is this group of people that you have asked us to love and to continue loving even in the midst of our difficulties. Oh God, grant us that. And we, as you enable us, will obey you by loving one another. Our Father, uh, we do thank you for all of your kindnesses shown to us and pray that as we, as we give today that you will enable us to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ and that only. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Before we begin this morning, I, I wanted to do something. And uh, I don't know that I've ever done this. In fact, there's a couple of firsts this morning. But I'd like to um, recognize you men and women who have served our country in one of the branches of the military. If you have so done, would you please rise? <clears throat> please, please remain standing. Please remain standing. I, um, I, I hesitate to mention movies from the pulpit because people then, you know, uh, tell them that I'm trying to encourage movies. I'm not. I just went to see Pearl Harbor on Friday, though, and, and, um, it gave, and for all its good and its bad, it gave us, uh, reminded me of the sacrifices that so many have paid. 
I would love to find out how many of you um, have served in one of the World War II or Korean War or Vietnam War. We won't do that, but I did find out yesterday that World War II veterans are dying at the rate of a thousand a day. So it doesn't give us much chance to thank you. We want to thank you. And before you sit down, I'd like to have a word of prayer. Father, um, we do not want to mix our worship of you with a love of country, but we do love our country. And we consider it a gift that you gave us. A gift that we enjoy continually, but it has not come without a steep price. And I do thank you, O oh God, for the men, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, who, who found it in their hearts to go do something that many of us perhaps couldn't find it in ours. I pray, O oh God, that you will protect our nation. We thank you for men and women such as these who have you, you have used to protect it in the past. Father, might we never forget that peace, peace comes as a derivative of righteousness. And might our nation find herself a righteous nation. But thank you for providing men and women who are willing to die for a nation that once desired righteousness above all else. Might we one day find ourselves returning to that posture. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, men and women. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I am about to do something that I don't think I've ever done before. I can't remember ever having done it. Um, this is my sermon. This is something else. I was asked yesterday morning to uh, speak to a group of men about a subject. And um, this is what I used to speak to them about. And um, after I finished, I had two of them come and plead with me to um, share with the congregation what I had shared with them yesterday. And so I thought about it and I wrestled all, I mean, I was out in my garden yesterday pulling out weeds and wondering, Lord, lead me. Would you please lead me? Would you rather me do this or would you rather me do this? And I sat in the sun and thought and thought and thought. And to the best of my understanding, ladies and gentlemen, I got no messages from heaven. I tell you what would be really be dramatic is if I would say to you, I would take this sermon and throw it down and, and say, the Lord has told me to do that. Well, I wish he had done that. He didn't. Uh, but I tend towards the dramatic, as you know. Uh, but I won't throw it, because I'll need it in the fall. But to the best that I can detect and understand his leading, um, I'm going to do something besides what I prepared all week to do. I want to speak to you about something that I spoke to 25 men yesterday morning. You know, um, you pay me rather handsomely, um, and what you pay me for is not to sit around all week and preach sermons. What you pay me for is to sit around all week and try to preach sermons better. And um, if that's the case, then I probably owe you some of my salary back. Maybe I should return half of it every year, and, and then we'd be even. But um, I, I, I say that to say this. 
uh, you, the staff of Gracie Van is constantly trying to figure out how we can do things better, how we can improve on what we're already doing. And, and on occasion, when we get together, uh, the, I guess the thing that's foremost in the front of our minds is, where are we failing and, and what things need to be changed, what things need to be improved? How can we do what you've asked us to do and pay us to do, and how can we do it better? Well, we had one such occasion just recently. The uh, occasion consisted of a staff retreat that we had in early April. And so we gathered at a place right in North Mississippi, uh, really 45 minutes from here. It's a great little spot that uh, Cindy Cole found. And the whole staff gathers, and we have supper together, and then we, uh, we talk all night and spend the night and get up the next morning early and have breakfast and talk all day. And primarily, we're trying to figure out how can we do things better what is it that we do poorly and what needs to be improved and et cetera. So this past April, as I said, we got together and uh, we came to two pretty painful conclusions. Uh, there was a lot of things that, um, that I guess we could add to that list of two, but there were two things that troubled all of us, all of us, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there were two things that we realized that really we don't do very well as a church and perhaps you could lay that at the feet of leadership. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's what we should do. I don't know. But there are two things that I want you to know that are, that are very upsetting, that are very much a concern to everybody on the staff, primarily, particularly, and specifically me. But I, I don't take all the credit for being burdened. I think everybody on this staff is burdened. The, um, the first thing that really gripped us was that what we want to see take place in a worship service, we don't see happening very often in a worship service. You know, um, I uh, put together an introductory tape just uh, uh, recently that we send out to visitors. And, and in there, I, I was describing our worship service, and I used two words. I used the word participatory um, and the word celebratory. That is, you know, we're trying to figure out who we are as a church, you know, and, and how do you describe their worship style over there at Gracie Van? You know, are they traditional or are they contemporary? And, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm still am not able to answer that question for you. In fact, um, I asked a group of our elders the other day, what would you call us? And they couldn't answer either. But when I, when I made the tape, what I said to them is, you know, I'm not concerned about being traditional or contemporary. What I want to be is participatory and celebratory. I want to see you engaged in the act of worship. And I want to see that worship to be something of a celebration. This is the Sabbath, ladies and gentlemen. The Sabbath is a day, one out of seven, that is set aside that we're supposed to remember heavenly, glorious, wonderful, eternal things. It's supposed to be a day of celebration. And it's supposed to be a day of participation. That I'm not the only one that's supposed to be engaged in this thing called worship and anybody else that might be up on this stage. You know, last week um, uh, we did some, um, we did one thing, we did several things, but one of them, of course, had to do with Brad Jones, who, who did that, uh, that opening piece that was, as you may recall, absolutely spectacular. And, um, uh, oh, that Brad Jones would quit his job as a pediatrician and uh, come and do that every week. I, I'm not sure we could pay him the same thing, but uh, we sure would enjoy it, wouldn't we? Well, last week um, uh, Brad invited, uh, Brad is dating a, a very wonderful woman and, and invited his, her parents to come uh, be a part of the worship service, and, and they came. And uh, they live in Jackson, Tennessee, and 
uh, I really liked those folks because they said nice things about my sermon. Um, but um, uh, he came up afterwards, after the sermon, and this man is a brain surgeon, literally. He is a neurosurgeon. And he came up to me and he said, you know, and said very nice things about my sermon. And he says, I'll tell you one thing, Dr. Young. I bet you those people never go to sleep in your church. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, that's not true. I can count on a couple of three of you to sleep every week. I can count on pretty much the same people and, you know... I don't know whether this bothers you, but I know you're out there. As bad as my eyes may be, they're not that bad. I can see somebody, you know, just fighting for, for consciousness. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't take that personally. It's not that I'm, I'm personally offended that people are asleep. Because very frankly, those of you, some, a very small number of you may be asleep, but a very large percentage of, of, of you are in neutral. You're in brain neutral. It's kind of like walking through those doors, signals that I can now shut down emotionally and, and intellectually, and I've got to go endure an hour of certain things that I don't have to endure in the course of a normal week. And I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that is an extraordinary concern for me. That one week out of the, excuse me, one hour out of the week, out of 168 hours that we have every week, that one of them is set aside for worship. And so many of you miss it. There is neither participation, nor is there celebration. And you come faithfully, and I applaud you, but you come and you come and there is no sense of being engaged either intellectually or emotionally or physically or any other way. It's basically there's an hour of going to church that I've got to get into. And I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that's an enormous concern of mine. And the staffs. When we were at our retreat, we groaned over what to do. The other concern, I mentioned that there were two, the other concern that we came up with in our staff retreat, you know, we have a, um, we have a uh, philosophy of ministry here. It's summarized in nine words and it goes, I hope you've heard it before, I say it just about every week. Uh, it goes like this, we're trying to reach an unchurched world through maturing believers. And so if you, can, if you think about that just for a second, you'll realize readily that there's two halves to it. Reaching an unchurched world, half number one, through maturing believers, half number two. So we separated the, um, the, the, uh, the philosophy of ministry statement here into those two halves, and we said, okay, how are we doing on both halves? Now, let me tell you about the one we're doing, that at least we consider we're doing fairly well. That is, uh, through maturing believers. Our staff agreed that, that uh, in terms of seeing people grow up in the faith and teaching them and instructing them in the precepts and mandates of God, we're doing okay, and I think the grade was something like B+. But then we came to this other part about reaching an unchurched world. And without fail, we run around the room and there was nothing but somber, sober looks. And, and we came to the conclusion that the best grade that we could possibly give ourselves was something in the world of, in the realm of D plus. D is in dog. 
that in terms of reaching an unchurched world, we're a D plus. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not here to blame. If you'd like to blame me, go right ahead. I'll take it. But, you know, I said back in February that one of the things that I long to see among us, I long to see this climate of evangelism, a climate where we're so concerned that those lost people out there are indeed lost. And instead of being grossed out that there's body piercings all over them, There's got to be a sense that we're concerned that they are lost. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll check Luke 15, you'll find that anything that was lost warranted an all-out effort to be reached, that is, to go find it. Oh, how I long to see. How I long to see us catch a vision that, that lost people are worth whatever we have to pay to reach them. And whatever we have to do in this room, we must do it. If it means that I've got to leave my chair and go introduce myself to somebody I don't know, I've got to do it because this is a matter of life and death. Oh, that Gracie Van would grab hold to such a, an urgency that this is life and death. And if they're on their way home today and die in a car accident, they'll spend an eternity separated from God. Oh, that we would capture But we haven't. And we don't. And I can't tell you how much it concerns me. And so we, we looked around the room and we all agreed that those were two enormous concerns, that there is no, that, that, that worship is not participatory and celebratory as often as we want it to be. And that there does not seem to be a climate, a mindset, an attitude on the part of our people that the lost must be found and that we must go find them. And so I looked around that group of wonderful staff members. You have a wonderful staff here, ladies and gentlemen, particularly the senior pastor. You have a wonderful staff here. I looked around and what do we do? What do we do? How do I create that? Would you have me go study more? What do I go and tell Randy Ray? Randy Ray is a champion, ladies and gentlemen. What do I go tell him? Get more books? Prepare harder? How do we as a staff, what do I say to a Jeff Simons? Do I say, Jeff, you're not working long enough hours? You're not putting in enough effort? Because there are two things that concern us both. And we've got to improve. What do I say to them, ladies and gentlemen? What would you have me say? What suggestions do you have? What recommendations could you give us that could possibly allow us to effect that which we so desire to effect. What could we possibly do that would create in your heart such a desire to celebrate and to participate every Sunday morning? What could we possibly do? Do you have any suggestions? We're open. 
that would, that would inculcate within the hearts and the souls of our people a longing and a burning to reach lost men and women. What do you want us to do? Tell us. Well, go do it. Because we're more burdened than you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here's what we came to conclude. That the only thing that any of us could ever possibly do is pray. And pray. And pray some more. You know, guys, um, you may not know this, but every Saturday is a work day for me. I work every Saturday. Sometimes I work longer on Saturday than other Saturdays, but like yesterday, but every Saturday is a work day for me. Every Saturday. Because somewhere in the course of the night, you're going to find me in my bedroom sitting in a green chase lounge chair with my sermon in hand and I'm going over it and over it and over it and over it and over it. And then somewhere around 9.30, the lights go off and the door gets shut. And I'm in there praying for you. And we as a staff back in April agreed that if there's anything that we are to do, we have covenanted together that some portion of our Saturday nights are going to be spent praying for you. Because we have concluded there's nothing else that will possibly affect the things that we so long to see true among us. I, um, I do have a text, in case you were wondering. In fact, we're not going to read them because you already know them. It's a very interesting thing, ladies and gentlemen. It's a very interesting phenomenon because I don't know that the Bible ever does this again. Now, I, I could be proved wrong, and if I am, I, you know, I'm, I'm the first to admit that I was wrong, but I don't know that there's another instance of what I'm about to show you in the Scriptures. But you know these passages. What I'm saying is that there is a piece of repetition in the New Testament that I don't know that Jesus ever does ever before. Now, I know there, there, are, there are kingdom parables like you find in, Mark, uh, in uh, Matthew 13 where he's talking about the kingdom of God is likened to this. The kingdom of God is likened to this. It's like a pearl. It's like a treasure of great price. He uses all kinds of uh, parables to give us some kind of glimpses into the, the nature of the kingdom. But what I'm suggesting is he's giving us a parable that is almost exactly the same kind of parable. And I don't know that he ever gives us two parables to teach the same lesson. Like this. And, and the first parable is found in Luke chapter 18. And you might want to flip your Bibles open to Luke 18, because if you don't know it, um, I, I'm not even going to read it. I'm going to go over it rather hurriedly. But it's a parable that's very familiar. It's a parable about a woman. And a woman who apparently, not apparently, but is in a situation where she has found that there's a, a great deal of injustice that has been done her. And so um, she, there's a certain judge in the city, and, uh, and the judge is described as one who doesn't fear God nor regard man, but there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me, for my adversary. And, uh, and he would not for a while, says the parable. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest her by her continual coming she weary me. All day long this woman comes and bumps the daylight out of me. I don't fear God, I don't fear man, 
But I'm telling you, I'm going to give her what she wants because if I don't, she's going to drive me crazy. I'm going to have to listen to this lady's requests because she keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. And though for a while I've, I've resisted her, I can't resist her forever because if I do, she's going to make me nuts. I've got to listen to her. I've got to go do what she says because... Because she's driving me crazy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just to show you that I'm, I'm seminary trained and have a very advanced degree, um, this is called an a fortiori uh, argument. The, the, the point in that, I'll explain that in a second. The point in this parable is not that God is some kind of corrupt judge who responds only to constant badgering. That's not the point of the parable. An a fortiori um, uh, argument is one that is summarized with these words, how much more? The point of the parable is not that God is a corrupt judge who responds only to constant badgering, ladies and gentlemen. The point of the parable is, if a corrupt judge responds to persistence like this, how much more will God respond to the persistent, growing, increasing, advancing, persistent praying of His people. You know, ladies and gentlemen, there is in this parable, in fact, it's the, it's the punchline. Well, I'll say the punchline. Let me, let me tell you this first. For Jesus in this parable, the issue is not whether God answers prayer. That's not the issue. The issue is, do God's people have enough faith to persist in prayer? Do you? You know, ladies and gentlemen, this, this parable contains a verse that I think is one of, if it's not my favorite, it's one of my most favorite verses in the entire Bible. He closes this section, this parable, by, by this statement in verse 9, verse 8, when he says, When the Son of Man comes again, will he find faith on the earth? Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is to be understood in context of that parable. When the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? Will He find a group of people that are so faithful that they are persisting and persisting and persisting and persisting in prayer? Will He find them? Ladies and gentlemen, may I say to you, when Jesus comes again, if He can find faith no place on this earth, might He be able to find it in me? But the evidence of that faith is very clearly from this parable, manifest in a people who are willing to persist and pray and pray and pray and pray and then pray some more. There's another parable, ladies and gentlemen, that is just like it. This is the, the, the thing that I say is unique to the New Testament. I don't know of any other occasion where Jesus does something like this. He has another parable, same kind of parable, same point, but this one is a, is a friend, has somebody that comes to him at midnight for a visit. And so he doesn't have anything to feed him. And so he goes next door and he says, Friend, I'm in verse 5, 
um, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to see me on this journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed. Don't leave me alone. I'm asleep. My kids are in bed. I don't want to get out of bed. I want to write. But, says the, the, the parable, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, if I don't get out of this bed and give that guy three loaves of bread, he's going to drive me bananas. I don't want to get out of bed. I'm going to stay in bed. But he keeps knocking. And because he keeps knocking, I'm going to have to get up from here and give him what he asks. Ladies and gentlemen, I do not know of another time in Scripture where Jesus makes this point again, like he's done here. There's, you know, guys, I, there's a lot about prayer I don't understand. You know, people from time to time ask me things about prayer, you know, and I don't have answers. Well, well is God, you know, how does God's sovereignty um, uh, coincide with our having to pray? I mean, if God knows what we need already, why should we pray about it? And, and I don't know. I cannot answer all of your questions concerning prayer. But I can answer this much. It is very clear from these two parables that the thing that is at stake is not whether I can answer all of your theological inquiries. The issue is, will you be steadfast to pray? You know, listen, gentlemen, Jesus gives you the moral of this story. He gives it to you. By the way, it's Luke 11. He gives you the moral of the story in verses 9 through 10 where he says to you, So I say to you, says Jesus, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. You get the parable and then you get the punchline. You get the parable and then you get the moral of the story. Ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock, I ask, seek. Keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on. And, and again, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, this is an a fortiori argument. The point again is not that God is to be... Sh- has to be shamed into answering our prayer. The point is that if some kind of lazy, inconsiderate neighbor will ultimately do the right thing, how much more will a righteous God do the right thing? Therefore, Go on, asking, seeking, knocking. Because the point, ladies and gentlemen, is not whether God answers prayer. The point is whether or not you and I will have faith to persist in prayer. You know, ladies and gentlemen, in both of these parables, it is very clearly implied. The, the, the assumption in both of these parables is that God may not answer immediately. In fact, it seems to be a part of His wisdom to even resist us. So that, ladies and gentlemen, you and I can exercise enough faith to pursue Him for a lifetime.
persisting in prayer. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, He tells you very clearly in these two parables that you can expect Him not to answer immediately. In fact, gang, if He answered immediately, it would harm us spiritually. If He answered every time I opened my mouth, you and I would all conclude that He's some kind of divine automaton that we can drop into a few coins and, and, and this vending machine, machine in the sky will drop little goodies all over us. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the very clear implication of these parables is that He, even in us, as a part of His divine sovereign wisdom, chooses to resist us. And the issue is not whether God answers prayer. The issue is, do I have faith enough to persist in my asking? Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what else to do. I cannot produce a climate of evangelism. I cannot produce a worship service that encourages you to participate in this. I cannot scold you into it. I cannot instruct you into it. But I can pray. And so can you. Are you up for it? Do you have this kind of faith? What am I asking you to do? I'll tell you what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to pray like somebody just came over to your house for a visit and you've got nothing to feed them. That the realization has finally broken through. That the needs that exist at your very doorstep you cannot meet. I'm asking you to pray as if you found yourself in a situation that is completely and totally out of your control. So that you will plead and that you will beg. That you will be so aware that your circumstances are beyond your control. That you will be driven. years or so before I retire I can only tell you this I'll be praying will you join me our father I, I pray that your people will lay hold of the the lessons not from Jimmy Young but from your word lessons made so clearly and so precisely that it is impossible to miss them 
lessons that will draw us into this posture of of immediate, persistent, 